Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Other Side Podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of The Other Side Podcast. I'm Scott Kirk. And in partnership with the Columbus Dispatch Editorial Board, The Other Side is featuring a series of special podcast episodes called In Black and White. The series is devoted to discussing racism and its meaning. These episodes were run in conjunction with op-ed columns appearing in the newspaper and on Dispatch.com. Dr. Terrence Dean and I will be interviewing scholars in relevant fields to try to answer some of the most important questions related to to racism. And joining us today is Dr. Trayvon Logan, a professor of economics at Ohio State University. Dr. Logan wrote an op-ed column for the dispatch called Racist Policies of Old, Laid Pattern for Inequalities of Today. Dr. Logan, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate having you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. I'm glad, Dr. Logan, that you're able to join us and to talk more in depth about your op-ed that you wrote for the Columbus Dispatch. And I want to jump right in because we're talking about some old laid patterns for inequities that have constituted and created the groundwork and foundation for um, home ownership in in Columbus, um, Ohio today. Could you talk a little bit more of what inspired you to write this op-ed piece? And is it particularly because of the land and, and grants or more so also about home ownership that constituted this type of you know response from you? Yes, I think I go even further back than that. I've really been interested first in residential segregation, which we know is something that is a pattern that applies to cities. And in my earlier research, I was looking to expand this to rural areas as well and looking at those connections. And so cities don't arrive to look as they do at any point in time by happenstance. So we have to think about how these processes evolve. And you layer on to residential segregation, the concentration of poverty, economic inequality, racial wealth gaps, and then it begins this entire sort of systematic analysis of the various ways in which inequalities can be reinforcing. And so my earliest work was really you know, specifically focused on measurement of segregation and thinking about that nationwide, but then realizing that this dovetails naturally into my interest in reparations. And the reparations research, of course, where we know that there is a substantial racial wealth gap at the mean and at the median between African-Americans and whites that has actually gotten worse over time. And a key component of wealth for the average household, median household, say, in the United States is home ownership. And we know from the Great Recession, African-Americans did make some gains in wealth that completely disappeared after the housing market collapsed around 12 years ago. And so that really got me thinking about how my work on segregation and the evolution of segregation related to spatial distributions in cities, and then thinking about how is it that something 
anything like the Great Recession occurring in the 21st century is related to residential segregation patterns and redlining that occurred in the 1920s and 30s and thinking about how that plays a role in the persistence of the economic inequality that we see between Blacks and whites. And so that was where I was really thinking about all of these issues together because we can't think about solutions to contemporary racial inequality without understanding how they evolved and how they were a direct consequence of intentional action. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm glad you brought that up in regards to making the correlation between the 21st century of the recent housing gap, but also the explosion that occurred during our time with that of the 1920s and the Great Depression. Because there was a great migration of Black persons who were coming from the South, who headed to the North, but, but stopped here a lot in the Midwest and here in Ohio, but in concentrated areas. So with the New Deal that was created, how does that create a redlining and this mapping that you talk about in your in your op-ed of where Blacks live and concentrating Blacks to certain type of neighborhoods? There are two patterns in, involved in this, one that precedes the Great Depression and the policy responses there, and then one that was committed with it. So first, before we have a Great Depression, we have cities that are growing, right? And cities that are growing even before the Great Migration takes place. So there's some really cool early work that looks at the fact, and you can look at Columbus and see this, that where you have these railroad cuts, these railroad tracks, these cities end up being more segregated today. So imagine when you cross from Columbus and you're on Broad Street and you cross over to Bexley, for example, you have to go under a railway bridge. And so these sort of barriers become natural ways in which people can segregate themselves into cities. So there was some already unintended infrastructure that led to intensive segregation in, in cities. But then we moved to the Great Depression and a housing crisis there, which initiated the federal government's interactions with the mortgage market. So an early forerunner, essentially, to what we have now in terms of uh, Fannie Mae and, and Freddie Mac, which purchased mortgages and repackaged them and securitized them and keep this market liquid, was to save homeowners in the early 1930s who were experiencing problems paying their mortgages, because the last thing you want is the housing market to collapse for a lot of reasons. So to do that, they wanted the government wanted to make sure that they were investing in housing assets that were secure. And so they drew up these security maps for this homeowner loan corporation, which divided cities and labeled neighborhoods of cities as either, you know, A graded, you know, very um, not risky. And not risky doesn't mean that the individual in that house in that neighborhood is not necessarily close to default, but that the property itself would likely retain its, its values on a, a either upward or a stable trajectory, all the way down to degraded places, which are considered very, very risky. Now, the issue is those segregation patterns that existed for before the, the maps were drawn were basically reinforced with these redlining maps, the redlined maps, the redlined areas of Columbus, the redlined areas of other cities are the places that were already 
predominantly African-American. So they were literally listed by the federal government as places that were risky in terms of a financing, bank financing in particular for home loans. And this then are places in which interest rates are going to be higher. Unintended consequences that we currently think about today would be lack of business investment in these communities because the uh, because of uh, lack of uh, access to capital. And these are also places where you're going to see then a transition to much more rental housing than you would have owner occupancy. So if you think about a neighborhood like the Near East Side, it is not uncommon to see these once grand single family homes divided up into a number of rental units. That is a process that takes place because whites move out of those neighborhoods retain ownership of those homes and turn them into apartments. We now know that those apartments rented for extraordinarily high values because of the segregation patterns in cities. And if you wanted to buy a home, that was also really expensive. So it wasn't even like the inverse that you would typically expect. So Black people who couldn't afford the homes in the neighborhood also were uh, paying exorbitant rent prices because they were locked into those neighborhoods of, of the city. That then inhibits their ability to grow wealth. So you would do this blockbusting activity. You would African Americans overpaid for their homes that would then decrease in value over time. So it was a net negative to their net worth. And all of this was based upon a racialized way of looking at neighborhoods and therefore looking at access to capital in those neighborhoods, particularly for home ownership, the key vehicle of wealth building uh, in the United States. So could you talk a little more about how that system is racially systemic um, and the implications against black persons? Because I think some people who may be listening may say, well, OK, you know, some neighborhoods, you know, they're, you know, segregated into neighborhoods and some are white. And, you know, because of, you know, affordability um, and home ownership, you know, you know, um, access to jobs. Like, I think a lot of people are not sure how this systemically um, becomes a racial problem or implication. Could you tell us or explain how that becomes such a manner? The first thing is to realize that segregation does not occur you know, naturally. It's a deliberate process. It's not just sorting when people say, hey, all the African-Americans like to live with other African-American people. And if that were the case, it wouldn't be correlated with other things. Right. And so we know it's a purposeful process because it's related to specifically the geography of cities. We also know that it's related to policy. So, um, again, going back before the Depression, as cities grew, one of the things that they did explicitly in new developments were to have racially restrictive covenants. So there are neighborhoods in Columbus that had racially restrictive covenants. Some neighborhoods, I believe, in, in Upper Arlington had, for example, if you were a developer, you're building these homes, you build these homes, and you therefore, when you um, sell the homes to the first owners, they're contractually obligated not to sell to Black people. So you exclude Black people from these neighborhoods, not by price, but by race. So it is an explicitly racial process. Those neighborhoods, even to this day, are wider than neighborhoods that are right next door that did not have racially restrictive covenants. So it isn't just about the space. And it's important to understand that racially restrictive covenants were not ruled unconstitutional until 1948. So well, after World War II, you could have these racially restrictive covenants, which really do, a, it's a process that we call in, in history path dependence. Once you've constructed literally an all-white neighborhood, there are a lot of forces that keep that neighborhood white over time, right? 
home sales, transfers to children, a hostility to African-Americans who might move in, steering by real estate agents, et cetera. But it's important to note that explicitly at the founding of many of these communities was an intention to exclude Black people because of their race. So when we talk about this as a function, say, of income or education or lack of information, lack of access to capital, we have to confront the fact that historically race was explicitly taken into account. When you move up to the redlining maps that we were talking about in the 1930s, they just lay over a process that had already been at least 20 years underway. So the maps themselves are not telling you this place is risky, this place is not risky. It's telling you this place has been designated as a place for a racially exclusive neighborhood. And it's labeled as safe because these racially um, restrictive neighborhoods have greater access to capital, higher levels of uh, stability, greater levels of public investment. Everything in these neighborhoods is slated to work. These also become the neighborhoods that GI uh, Bill recipients can move into And they can be then subsidized by government policy to help people own homes in racially restricted neighborhoods. That is another way in which the policy can be deliberate. There was no way in which these were sort of exclusive or where people had, for example, to have and move into desegregated or or desegregating neighborhoods. It could reinforce those patterns where you could exclude African-Americans from your neighborhood. Another process along with that is, and I think this is an important aspect to understand about segregation, is its relationship to suburbanization. So you could live, everyone could live in the city of Columbus if they wanted to live, say, in a separate neighborhood. They wanted to live in a black neighborhood. They wanted to live in an Italian neighborhood. They wanted to live into a, a German neighborhood. You could totally divide yourself in a city in that way. But this racially restricted development of suburbia features something else, and that is the lack of a desire to share public goods and to make political decisions with Black people. If you go and incorporate a suburban community that is racially exclusive, you don't have to share your school funding. You don't have to share your fire department. You don't have to share your police department. You don't have to share your city council with Black people. That was a key way in which suburbanization played a critical role. It once again, if you take adjoining communities and the only difference is you've crossed the border from the city, say, of Columbus to a suburban area, there's an immediate price differential there that economists typically use to back out the value that people place on being outside of the political district of the city where you're not sharing all of these decisions about public goods. That's an important component that's baked into house prices, which become part of people's wealth. So we're looking at the political implications of this, the social implications of this, the health implications of this, and the educational implications. So it becomes structural in all of these systems of where persons live, but also it becomes racially systemic. So can we talk a little more then when you talk about these communities, you talk about Upper Arlington, Old Town East. If those neighborhoods or, or particularly neighborhoods that are particularly significantly um, of people of color, would you advise that it's more beneficial to invest in those communities and confront those political, social, economic issues head on? How do you make those changes structurally? Is it possible to make those changes structurally in the system today? It's one of the deep ironies is that 
you know, the next piece of this puzzle that I'm going to get to to answering your question is you now zone cities in a particular way. And that zoning is where you can bring in the environmental hazards and concentrate those in the places that African-American people live, which should depress home values because no one wants to live next door to the factory that's producing soot. And I'm not saying this is just a you know, speaking a little bit in hyperbole, but no one wants to live next to the open pollutant. But if you zone it where that's where the, the pollutant can actually stay, you literally designated the people in that neighborhood to have those sorts of outcomes and you've negatively impacted their property values. That also is a political process because there are some people you're going to rough, run roughshod over, over others. The same thing with interstate construction, which is a federal government policy which subsidizes suburbanization where you choose to use eminent domain to destroy neighborhoods, cut them off from the central city, is another way of depressing home values and actually facilitating the movement of people to outlying communities for the purposes of being racially exclusive in, in many dimensions. So all of that features into that. So now the question is, well, how do we correct it? Because what we see, and it, it's strange in these sort of early sort of urban economics models, the idea was always that cities would reverse themselves. In other words, there'd be this process of suburbanization, and then you would see this reversion back where people would want to come back to central cities. And what we see now, it's something that I always think is very curious, which is that the same neighborhoods that were divested from, that were redlined, and we can talk about them in Columbus on the west side, on the near east side, um, Linden community, et cetera, now become places where we have specialized programs for investment. So if you're in one of the communities, you can have a property that is tax abated and a tax abated uh, property uh, in, say, the, the old town east area has a 15 year tax abatement. Right. And that's a wonderful way of bringing in higher income people into the community. But the question is, what are we doing for the existing residents who had to endure decades of active disinterest? And it turns out we don't do very much for them unfortunately, in this process. How do we protect their home values, increase their home values? How about giving them a property tax holiday? How about thinking about ways of having community health activities for the existing residents? A lot of the policies that we use, and I've taken advantage of them myself as a um, relatively new resident of, of Columbus, how do we think about the people who have had to endure the decades of policies of active disinvestment? So we think typically about how we're going to change this neighborhood, which typically means how are we going to make this neighborhood wealthier, which almost by definition means how are we going to make this neighborhood whiter? And it's not lost on anyone that the attempts to change the racial composition of these neighborhoods to being white is now a process of active investment by the city in terms of redoing streets, um, redoing sidewalks, fixing, for example, drainage systems, et cetera, to make these neighborhoods have amenities that are desirable to people who would like to live there. But people were living there for the last 50 years and these places fell into absolute neglect. So now that you want to change it around and the racial composition is changing, it still seems to many people to be related to racial composition and racialized policy. Very interesting. So essentially, what we're trying to, we're trying to like you said, disrupt the system and reimagine a system that has already impacted or damaged the community. I don't want to say damaged um, people who already lived in that community. How do we rectify or fix those and make them whole again? Is there something that is in, in consideration or is it just, well, 
Um, sorry we did that for all these decades, these years, and it impacted you. But now we're here and, and we can move forward. So is there something in, in place to repair and make those persons whole again? I don't think there are things as large as I would like in place uh, to repair and make things whole again. I am a big advocate for reparations for the descendants of American slavery. My personal preferred policy has an explicit component for property ownership for African-Americans. And the reason being, and people talk about reparations and they have many different ideas about it, but I want people to understand that we have had a nation from the very beginning with the establishment of the Northwest Ordinance, a policy of redistributing wealth to white citizens of the United States. Northwest Ordinance that sells land very cheap. Homestead Acts give land away. GI Bill subsidizes housing. The creation of mortgage-backed securities. All of these things have been highly racialized and fueled by racial inequality. That is a large government-sponsored wealth transfer to white individuals. It has excluded explicitly Black people. Part of the political support for these policies was because they could exclude Black people. So when we think about a policy for reparations that would have a component for home ownership, this is getting right at the heart of what reparations should be, which is to repair a harm. It is not that there is this, and I always bristle at this idea that this is there's a giveaway to African Americans. When we have had a giveaway to whites for hundreds of years, for example, in the state of Georgia, when they signed treaties with Native American nations and drove them from their land, they would have land lotteries. And these land lotteries were literally lottery tickets, lottery tickets to own land that would be some of the most valuable land at the end of the antebellum era because it would become arable. It's arable land for the production of cotton, for example. This was literally a government giveaway, a free lottery ticket, right? not even what Powerball or Mega Millions is going to do with their jackpots. And you had to be a white male to qualify for it. So once again, a racially exclusive policy. So when we talk about reparations and letting African-Americans move into this system and have access to capital financed by the government, it is the acknowledgement that these programs are a longstanding tradition in American history, but they have excluded African-Americans. Wow, this is really great. I really appreciate your time. I really have just one, you know, question, but also with more so advice that you would offer um, to African Americans who are seeking home ownership or um, those who are looking to um, possibly move or or looking for ways to decrease ways of the um, the racial wealth gap and home ownership. What advice would you offer? I think it, in terms of home ownership, it is to make sure that you are viewing home ownership as a both and. I don't think you should view home ownership only as an investment. Um, home prices can be somewhat volatile. We've seen that from the Great uh, Recession all the way to the run-up in home prices that we currently uh, observe. 
to understand how the mortgage market works and the various products that are out there. You know, do you want to have an adjustable rate mortgage? Do you want to have a fixed rate mortgage? Understanding the role of interest rates in your uh, your homeownership. I would advise people who are currently homeowners, given the historically low interest rates, to investigate refinancing if that can be advantageous for them. Interest rates are at historic lows, and they really actually can't probably get any lower in terms of homeownership. This would be a great time just from the financing perspective uh, to do that. To recognize that the full cost of homeownership is not just a mortgage, but also to understand that there are some particular advantages, again, that we have in government systems that specifically advantage homeownership. The deduction of home interest, home mortgage interest in taxes, the ability to deduct uh, property taxes as a homeowner from your tax, from your federal tax bill that you can't as a as a renter. Ways in which it can reduce uh, insurance premiums, for example, for people who are homeowners, and the way it can act as a store of, of capital. Once you build equity into your home that you can tap for other purposes, this is one of the ways that wealth transfers intergenerationally uh, and for a lot of American households. So to understand home ownership as a multidimensional process and then to educate yourself about the nuts and bolts. If you're a first time home buyer, there are incentives and programs that can be neighborhood specific, employer specific financial institution specific that can really help you. And but you have to learn about them. No one's going to throw free money at you. Typically, uh, even with low interest rates, you still want to make sure that you understand all the different products that are out there. And then also understanding ways in which you need to be financially ready for homeownership. Simply because you qualify for something does not necessarily mean that you should move forward with it given a whole variety of circumstances. So really encouraging people to go into it with what as economists would say is full information. And that's really difficult to do if you think about the fact that homeownership rates are relatively low in the African-American community. We might not have extensive networks of people who are homeowners or people who have had positive experiences with homeownership, given that African-Americans, especially before in the run-up of the early 2000s in the housing market, were subject to predatory lender activity, mortgages that were quickly in default, where people immediately upon signing the contract are overextended and owe more on their home than their worth and were literally upside down. And this is one of the reasons why homeownership declined so significantly among African-Americans in the Great Recession. So that was a way in which we can be given this process in which we don't have extensive experience sitting ducks for those who would like to do predatory practices uh, with African-Americans. So always to be mindful of that. Thank you again, Dr. Logan. Truly a pleasure to have you with us here in Black and White. Thank you so much again. And we look forward to your um, your op-ed and your podcast running simultaneously, but also have a great semester at Ohio State this year. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. For everyone else out there, make sure you check out the full column written by Dr. Logan. You can find it on dispatch.com and in print. And be sure to check back regularly for the next installment of In Black and White podcast series. And so until the next time, try to see things from the other side. Thanks. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. 
Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.